Good morning again. Thanks for joining us here at Prairie View Christian Church. Over the past nine months or so, we've spent a lot of time in the Gospel of John. We covered some chapters back in the fall and more chapters just now this spring. On top of that, our Friday morning men's breakfast has been taking a much deeper verse-by-verse dive into John's Gospel for quite a while now, and we still have a ways to go. And that's all well and good. The Gospel of John is wonderful. It's also familiar, and maybe even comfortable. John is often the first book of the Bible that someone might read, and it's one we might come back to time and time again long after we've believed. But this morning we begin a sermon series in what could very well be uncharted biblical territory for most of us, and that is the book of Ezekiel. If we were to compare parts of the Bible to different musical genres, the book of Ezekiel would be heavy metal. It's raw. It's unapologetic. It's intense. So as a result, reading, interpreting, and preaching from Ezekiel can be a real challenge. That's probably why many Christians don't read it, and many preachers don't preach it. The church father, Jerome, noted that because of how obscure the beginning of the book is and how bizarre the end of the book seemed, men under the age of 30 were not allowed to read it. A commentary on Ezekiel was the last work that theologian John Calvin ever attempted to write, and he died before he could finish it. And in one of the books I read earlier this week, the author opened with a warning. And the warning said this, the judgments and promises of God as given through Ezekiel are so extreme that they can easily undo ordinary religiosity. Now, personally, I'm not convinced that undoing ordinary religiosity is entirely a bad thing. We believe that all scripture is God breathed. We believe that the God we read about in the Gospel of John is the same God of the book of Ezekiel. And while this book is not for the faint of heart, Ezekiel has some important things to teach us about God. So open up to Ezekiel chapter 1. Feel free to use our Bibles if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't own one. Ezekiel is near the end of the Old Testament, so probably about two-thirds of the way into your Bible. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Thank you that even if this Sunday doesn't have the same fanfare that last Sunday had, thank you that we can still say that Christ is risen and that we are here worshiping you again. And Lord, I pray that as we open your word to a part that we might not open it up to very much, I pray that you would teach us about yourself. Help us get a better understanding of who you are and what you do, not just for the sake of head knowledge, not just for the sake of knowing the Bible better, as good as that may be, but for the sake of knowing you better, that we can obey you more faithfully, love you more deeply and tell others about you more accurately 
So I pray that you would teach us in the weeks ahead as we read this book of Ezekiel. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chebar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Chebar Canal. And the hand of the Lord was upon him there. These opening verses help us get the lay of the land. First, they tell us something about this book's timing. The fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim directs us to 2 Kings 24, a time of significant turmoil in Jerusalem. The year was roughly 595 B.C. Second, these verses tell us something about Ezekiel's circumstances. He is among the exiles in the land of the Chaldeans. Ezekiel is part of a group of Jews who had been forcibly removed from their home in Jerusalem and taken to the nation of Babylon. Things would get even worse several years later when Babylon would not only exile more people, but would ransack Jerusalem and destroy God's temple. And third, these verses tell us about the prophet himself. Ezekiel is both a priest, someone who acts as a middleman between God and his people, and a prophet, someone whose primary job is to call God's people to faithfulness and obedience. One commentator calls Ezekiel an enigma, But he also calls him the most intellectual of the prophets and even calls him a poet. But let's continue in chapter two, verse one. And he said to me, he being God, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, They will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me. 
And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So Ezekiel's primary God-given task is to speak to God's people. Okay, sounds simple enough. But here's the rub. God's people won't listen. They are stubborn, rebellious, transgressive, and intimidating. But Ezekiel's mission remains the same. Speak. Whether they listen or not, speak. Keep leading the horse to water, even if it refuses to drink. And what exactly should Ezekiel say? Verse 10 tells us. Words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Not exactly an inspiring, uplifting, or popular message, is it? We get into more detail in chapter 7, starting in verse 1. We read there. The word of the Lord came to me. And you, O son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel. An end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity. But I will punish you for your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel is to inform God's people of God's coming judgment. And why are they being judged? They're being judged for their sin. Chapter 22 gives a thorough and disturbing summary of what that sin is. Jerusalem is referred to as the bloody city. They have devoted themselves to idolatry, family breakdown, neglect of the poor, improper acts of worship, illicit forms of sex, corruption, and greed. All are guilty, and they have been for a long time. The princes, the priests, the prophets, down to the ordinary people. The city of God had become a city of sin. So Ezekiel is sent to announce God's judgment. Again, that's a message that isn't going to win you very many fans. But it's a message that needed to be heard. So after that brief introduction to the book of Ezekiel, you can probably see why it's often avoided. And while we've already seen some unpleasant aspects of the book, we haven't even gotten to the weird stuff yet. For example, God calls Ezekiel to several very strange, symbolic gestures of his coming judgment. In chapter 4, Ezekiel has to engrave a picture of Jerusalem's fall on a brick, lie on his side for 430 days to represent the years of punishment for God's people, and then eat bread baked over cow dung, which is probably something that hipsters do these days, but it wasn't back then. 
In chapter 5, Ezekiel has to shave his head and his beard, burn some of the hair, destroy some of it with a sword, and then cast the final third of it to the wind. And in chapter 12, God tells Ezekiel to pack his bags, publicly dig a hole in the wall of the city, and then climb through it to represent the coming exile. All very strange stuff. But it's not just God's people who will experience judgment. Chapters 25 through 32 are devoted to God's judgment of the surrounding nations as well. God in the book of Ezekiel is there to judge. You know, you don't hear much talk of God as judge these days. The idea of judgment often makes us squirm. We'd much rather focus on more warm and fuzzy aspects of God. Attributes like grace and mercy and kindness. Those make us feel good about ourselves. And even better, they don't make us sound as extreme to the surrounding world. But our reluctance to talk about God's judgment, or maybe even our ignorance of it, might reflect a degree of biblical illiteracy. If we don't recognize God as judge, we might not be reading our Bibles very much. Because we're missing one of the most consistent themes in all of Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. God acts as judge in Genesis 1 through 3. He lays down rules in the Garden of Eden and casts Adam and Eve out when they break them. Psalm 75, 6 and 7 tell us that God executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. The author of Ecclesiastes says that God will bring all things into judgment, whether good or evil. We see stunning examples of God's judgment in the New Testament as well. In passages like Acts 5 and 1 Corinthians 11, people get sick and or die as a direct result of sin. 1 Peter 4, 5 refers to God as him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And in Matthew 25, Jesus himself acts as judge. He separates people like sheep from goats, some inheriting God's kingdom and others heading for eternal fire. So the Bible is clear that God is judge. But some might ask, do we really need a judge? Doesn't that seem a little harsh, a little outdated? Well, the answer is yes, we do need a judge. Because we live in a fallen world, a world where evil, injustice, and corruption abound, a judge is necessary. And in a day and age where we may be more concerned than ever about justice, we need a just judge. The biblical definition of justice may be something like putting things right. And only God can truly put things right. 
Now, maybe you're still unconvinced of our need for God as judge. Theologian Matthew Barrett suggests imagining a world where justice is never done, where crimes are never punished, and sentences are never passed down. Barrett writes, A society characterized only by a justice that rewards those who do good, and not a justice that repays the wicked for the penalty they deserve, is a society that allows the wicked to rise up and crush the innocent. As much as our culture protests a God of retributive justice, we dare not imagine a society without it. In other words, if you don't like the thought of God acting as judge, be careful what you wish for. Another question might come up. Why should the God of the Bible be the judge? Well, first, he's the only God there is. So that narrows your options down. Second, he's the creator of the world in which we live, which gives him an inherent authority over it. And third, he's the only one who is morally perfect. J.I. Packer writes, Would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be a good and admirable being? Would a God who put no distinction between the beasts of history, the Hitlers and Stalins, if we dare use names, and his own saints be morally praiseworthy and perfect? Moral indifference would be an imperfection in God, not a perfection. The final proof that God is a perfect moral being, not indifferent to questions of right and wrong, is the fact that he has committed himself to judge the world. Packer adds that whoever the judge is, he has to have proper authority, dedication to justice, perfect wisdom, and the power to execute a sentence. And only God meets those criteria. So do we need a judge? Yes. Who should be the judge? God. But there's one more, much more personal question. And it's this. How will we be judged? The Bible is clear that God is holy. And scripture is equally clear that we are not. Like the house of Israel in the book of Ezekiel, we too are stubborn and rebellious. We follow in Adam and Eve's footsteps. And that puts us in quite the pickle. We've sinned against God and deserve to be judged. Theologian named Anselm put it this way. Man the sinner owes to God, on account of sin, what he cannot repay. And unless he repays it, he cannot be saved. So we can put it another way. We owe God a debt that we can't pay. But paying that debt is our only hope for salvation. You can see the problem there. But thankfully, God is not only a just judge. He's also a gracious redeemer. In fact, God is so gracious that he sent his sinless son to die in our place, 
taking our penalty on the cross for our sins. Because God is just, sin has to be punished. He can't just overlook it. And because God is gracious, he takes our punishment upon himself. The cross is the perfect intersection of the biblical stuff that we like talking about. God's mercy, love, kindness. And the biblical stuff that we don't like talking about. God's judgment. G.C. Burkhauer wrote that in the cross of Christ, God's justice and love are simultaneously revealed. In the cross, God's justice and love are simultaneously revealed. So in and of ourselves, we deserve God's judgment. But thanks to Jesus Christ, we are spared from God's judgment. Our eternal verdict has already been decided. We are justified by faith. As Paul says in Romans 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that means that we can look forward to the day of judgment, not with dread, but with joy and anticipation. 1 John 4, 17 says that believers in Jesus can have confidence for the day of judgment. Not confidence in ourselves but confidence in Christ. God is a just judge. And that message is not unique to Ezekiel. It's not unique to the Old Testament. It spans the entirety of God's word. God's judgment may not sound like good news for sinners at first. And quite frankly, apart from Jesus Christ, it isn't. But thanks to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, we can look forward to judgment, not as the day of our punishment, but as the day when God finally sets things right, once and for all, for his people and for his world. But are there any more practical takeaways from this? Well, first, I would challenge you to not be embarrassed by the God of the Bible. Don't be embarrassed by the God of the Bible. We need to speak about God as he really is. We should speak of God as he has revealed himself to be in his word. Not just focusing on the aspects that we like. Or the aspects that the surrounding world finds acceptable. Like Ezekiel, we must speak of God as he really, truly is regardless of the response that we might get. Second, along similar lines, I would tell you to be honest about judgment. In chapter 3, God calls Ezekiel a watchman for the house of Israel. In other words, Ezekiel is to speak openly about the judgment coming for God's people so that they might repent, turn from their wickedness, It's Ezekiel's responsibility to warn them. Similarly, we don't do people any favors when we soft pedal, sugarcoat, or water down the Bible's warnings about future judgment and Christ as our only hope in it. 
Sure, it may not be the very first thing that we talk about with a non-believer. But we also shouldn't kick that can down the road forever. Third, I would remind you of the significance of the cross. When we forget the seriousness of sin and neglect the reality of God as judge, the cross loses a great deal of its power. Because if sin isn't really that bad, and we aren't really that lost, and eternal judgment isn't really much of a thing, then where does that leave the cross? I suppose then it's just a nice gesture by a swell guy. But we know that the cross is far more than just a kind favor, a good example, or an act of generosity. It's all of those things, but also so much more. Jesus' cross is our salvation from eternal punishment and our confidence in the day of judgment. Don't ever forget the significance of that cross. And fourth, I would encourage you to live in faith, obedience, and joy. Our salvation should not lead us to a life of complacency or arrogance. Our assurance that we don't have to fear the day of judgment shouldn't lead us to spiritual laziness or a false sense of entitlement. There are warnings about that in the book of Ezekiel. And there are warnings about that elsewhere in Scripture, too. If we think our salvation is simply a justification to do whatever we want, then we never understood it to begin with. We read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, starting in verse 26, speaking to Christians, by the way. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth... There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There we get some heavy metal in the book of Hebrews. So again, the book of Ezekiel is not for the faint of heart. But it can help us get a fuller picture of the God we worship. Rather than the comfortable caricature that we may be attracted to. This fallen world needs a just judge. God is that just judge. And the just judge has provided his perfect son for our salvation. Believe it or not, it's good news that God is judge. As Leon Morris puts it, it means that in the end, God's will will be perfectly done. All will be set right. As the prophet Amos wrote, one day justice will roll down like waters. 
and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So may we remember that God is the just judge of all the earth and give him the worship and the awe that he deserves. And may we thank him for his son, Jesus Christ, our only source of salvation in the face of judgment. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the reminders of your word of who you are and what you've done and what you're doing and what you will do. And thank you for the parts of the Bible that we don't often turn to that afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, as the old saying goes. I pray that you would remind each of us in this room, if we have watered you down, if our understanding of your majesty and your power and your justice has become tame, I pray that this time in the book of Ezekiel would remind us of just how great you really are, just how beyond our imagination you really are, and that as we consider who you are, including the parts that shake us up a little bit, I pray that we would grow in our sense of awe and wonder, fear and reverence and love. Lord, again, thank you that you are a just judge, that sin has been dealt with and will ultimately be dealt with, but that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray that those of us who believe would rejoice in the fact that we can look to the day of judgment with confidence And I pray that we would have a greater sense of urgency to get Christ out to the world, knowing that you are the just judge. We love you. We honor you. We worship you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.